So what we're going to do now is dive into our message today, which is part five of a series of messages called Another in the Fire, Trusting God to Do the Impossible. This wasn't our plan A this summer. I was supposed to spend the whole summer preaching on the book of Revelation. But then I thought after this news broke, these people have gone through too much already (laughs) to put them through a Revelation series on top of that. And so (laughs) it would only make you more anxious. So I, uh, we, we sort of called an audible and we want to talk about how to trust God when you're up against something that seems insurmountable, impossible, when it doesn't seem like there is a way out of it. How practically speaking does it look for us to trust God through uh, these impossible seasons of life, like the one we're going through and we're about to go through for the rest of this year. So um, that, that really is why we wanted to do this series and, and especially today's message, as uh, we'll see in just a moment. Um, what I want us to ask today is how can we remain faithful to God when we face ever-increasing pressure to assimilate to the ways of the world? That's the task at hand. How, and y'all know I'm a pragmatic person, I like to think nuts and bolts, and we'll, by the end of this, get to the nuts and bolts of this. How do we remain faithful when we're facing pressure to assimilate? Now, if you're new to Christianity or if you aren't aware of Christian history, you may not know that from its inception, the Christian movement was subversive and countercultural. All the worst parts of Christian history took place when Christianity became the dominant culture, when Christianity took over governments and it became a compulsive thing to be a Christian, like you're compelled by the government to be a Christian, that's when we made all the worst mistakes. You know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's true for Christians as much as anyone else. And the flip side of that is Christianity has always been at its best and really pure and true Christianity is always on the outside looking in where where secular or popular culture is concerned. So um, how can we get in step with Jesus who never fit in to the culture around? He, He was never... Uh, you know, totally comfortable in the secular world. And and the secular world was certainly not comfortable around him. Now he was loving and welcoming and a good listener and all those things we like to think about Jesus. But his way and the way of the world is like two divergent paths. You can't really have both. And it's hard for us to figure this out because, you know, we don't live in an age where they're cutting our heads off for believing in Jesus. We don't live in a place where uh, believing in Jesus is illegal or gathering in church is dangerous and all this stuff, you know? There are parts of the world where that is the case. You know, there's, there are churches right now in China, for example, that are either illegal churches meeting underground or they are the official state-sanctioned churches where I was, there was a guy at our 8.30 service who, who said, I, I go to trips to China for work and um, and you wouldn't believe how dystopian it is. About two-thirds of the way through the, the service, they say if you carry a foreign passport, you can stay. The rest of you have to leave. It's, they have cameras watching every service. They have cameras on the offering basket uh, in, the, in the church to see who's giving and, and who's there and, and facial recognition and all this, all this craziness. And the pastor's sermons are 
are, are you know, filtered through the government. You have to say something affirmative about the Chinese Communist Party in every sermon, and you have to affirm cultural, uh, you know, historical beliefs like ancestor worship and things like that. I, I would have a hard time fitting ancestor worship into my messages, but, but these pastors, if they want to be state-sanctioned and official, they have to play by the rules. And and that is more difficult than the road we have in, in every way or almost every way. There's only one sort of way in which we might have it a little more difficult, not because the day-to-day persecution or anything like that, but just because when the lines are drawn that clearly for us, for Christians, it's easier to know how you are to be distinguished from the culture around you. But in our culture, the lines are not drawn for us. It's very blurry. It's hard to know how to be faithfully Christian in this secular setting of ours where they're not cutting our heads off or closing our you know, churches for not talking about ancestor worship and stuff. So how do you faithfully follow Jesus and, and distinguish yourself from the world without looking like a lunatic or just being judgy? Those are the kinds of things that I wrestled with as I wrote this message, um, and those are the kinds of things I wanted you to think about today, because, you know, no one is censoring my sermon. I don't have to send my sermons in to the government. It's not like it's 2014 anymore, uh, you guys, like those were the days in Houston, but that's, uh, that's another story for another time. There are real issues to be concerned about it. And, and seriously, I, I, I do think about this a lot because, you know, it's interesting to me how Christians are so often surprised by sinister forces in the world. The amount of pearl clutching I see from Christians when, uh, when the world acts like the world acts is, is a little bit surprising to me because just read your Bible Read your Bible and it's in there. The Bible is very clear. Of course, governments are evil. Of course, governments can't be trusted. Human institutions are just wretched with sin. And of course, of course, it shouldn't surprise you. Of course, Amazon wants you to pay them to put listening devices in every room of your house. And you do it. And they're listening. I'm not telling you, you have to throw Alexa out. I mean, it's, uh, it's probably too late anyway. They've probably heard it enough. And uh, <laughs> they've got enough on you by now, so it doesn't even matter. But I, I don't want to be a crazy person and too paranoid, but I do want to be faithful to Jesus and, and set myself apart from a world that's wrecked with sin. And so how, how? do we do that without just giving in to the crazy that's within us all? I look at this, I see this happening to Christians all the time, especially since the internet. Like Christians and conspiracy theories are like a match made in heaven, right? So you just, you just see it all the time, Christians giving in to the latest, hottest conspiracy theories. It's always Christians that are in this reputation for wearing the tinfoil hats and, and leaving the all caps comments in the comments section, but the UFOs and Pizzagate and, uh, uh, and uh, QAnon, all this stuff. It's always Christians that populate these conspiracy theories, and I want us to avoid that. But I got to be honest with you, like, there's also another part of me. 
there's another side of me that some of you are about to lose a lot of respect for me, but there's a lot of, another side of me because the longer I live, the more of these so-called conspiracy theories turn out to have nuggets of truth in them. Not all of them, but some of them. You realize, like, up until, uh, it wasn't that long ago, I guess, that, that black mothers in some parts of the country were swearing that the government was taking their kids and giving them syphilis and other kinds of, of sexually transmitted diseases just to see what would happen. And, and people rolled their eyes, said, you're crazy. The United States government would never do that to its citizens. Well, now we all know about the Tuskegee experiment. And there's other things that I've done deep dives on <laughs> that I wish I didn't know, MKUltra and Project Sunshine and, and uh, you know, Operation Paperclip and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> all right, so, so uh, they all have nuggets of truth and don't get me started on the UN and Lucifer's Trust and all this. I'm not crazy, you're crazy. I'm not crazy. <laughs> I feel like Mel Gibson in any movie he's ever been in. Like, I'm not crazy, or just Mel Gibson. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard sometimes to know where to draw the line. The point is we should not be caught off guard when the world acts like the world acts. Uh, all we need to do is open our Bibles and see the world's always struggled with evil and sin since Genesis 3, but God has always been faithful and good since forever. And third, and most importantly, by his grace, we can choose courage over conformity. Sometimes the least faithful thing to do would just be to conform even to conform to a world that's not overtly hostile um, to Christianity, but just still parts ways in more covert uh, in, in more covert methods, parts ways from the way of God. So what I want to do today is look at this story from the Old Testament that I think is a really good illustration of this very thing. A little bit of an, an extreme example, um, but we can learn from it. It's from the Old Testament book of Daniel, okay? So it's in the latter part of the Old Testament. If uh, you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can, you can familiarize yourself with it now. But if not, you can just follow along on the screen. And this passage we're going to read uh, takes place, uh, took place in 587 B.C., all right, so just after the siege of Jerusalem, the Babylonian armies had flattened the holy city, and sent the cream of the crop of the Israelites into exile. And some of the best of the best were recruited, or really not recruited, they were forced into the king's service in Babylon, into a training program where they would serve, they spend the rest of their lives serving the king's interests um, as magi, actually. That's what these guys were being trained for. And if you remember the story of the wise men in the New Testament, that that's kind of what these guys that we're going to read about were being trained into. Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Then the king, this is Nebuchadnezzar uh, the second. he ordered Ashpenaz, great name, chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So you see signs of assimilation. We want to make them like us, okay? The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Huge honor to be given these kinds of gifts for free. They were trained for three years, or they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, 
Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Baal Teshazar. All right, that's easier, easier said than done here. Okay, so Baal Teshazar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Those names sound familiar, right? Um, because those are the names we've uh, probably known these guys by, even though they were not their real names. They were rebranded in Babylon. That's what uh, oppressive secular cultures do to people, especially people of faith. They literally rebrand people. This happens all the time. This is a universal practice. When a people is in charge and they conquer other people, they rebrand them. And if they can insult the God or gods of the conquered people, they will. And the, the, the four guys from Israel, from Judah, all of their names were religious names. Look at what their names meant. Daniel, for example, meant Yahweh, the God of Israel, is my judge. Hananiah meant grace of the Lord. Mishael meant who is like God. Azariah meant helped by God. But then Nebuchadnezzar's official took these men and said, those are not your names anymore. That's not who you are. We'll tell you who you are now. And Daniel's new name, Baal Teshazar, meant Baal. That should have been the first warning sign when you hear Baal. That's one of the most common uh, Old Testament or pagan gods. Um, Dylan preached about Baal last Sunday with a great sermon last Sunday. Baal, protect the king is the name of Daniel's new name, is the meaning of Daniel's new name. Servant of sin, which sounds like a Marilyn Manson album, I think, but that's, uh, that sin is actually the name of another Babylonian god, uh, was Shadrach's meaning. Meshach meant servant of Aku, which is another god in Babylon's pantheon of gods. Abednego was servant of Nebo. All of those were these uh, pagan gods in the Babylonian structure, uh, the religious system there. So um, they, were, they were rebranded, and after that, uh, after that rebrand, they were then wined and dined. And this is so important for us to see conceptually. Now, you probably will never, maybe probably will never be conquered by another country and sent into exile and, and renamed. But this part uh, that we're about to talk about probably can, you can relate to a little more. So the king of this secular culture, who's trying to assimilate these men into his world, after rebranding them, gives them the finest food and wine that he can from his own table. No one ate better than the king. And these boys from Israel, they had never tasted anything like that food or they had never drunk anything like that wine. And you know, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for them to go, you know, it's not that we agree with the king, all right? It's, uh, it's not that we're worshiping the guy or anything, but what's wrong with enjoying ourselves. I mean, we're here. Why not just eat the food? Why not just drink the wine? It'll make our difficult lives just a little bit easier. And it occurs to me that this is always how cultural assimilation works. Whether there's a government that's forcing it upon you or whether it's us just choosing one little thing after another little thing that's just a little bit out of step with what we know would be right and principled, and soon enough, those little things become big things. If you compromise in the little things, you'll find yourself compelled to compromise in the big things. And these, and these young men were having nothing of it. Daniel and his boys were having nothing to do 
with it. It says in Daniel chapter one, verses eight, and then 11 through 16, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over them, uh, he said, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who ate the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And so the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. All right, so I think it goes without saying, Daniel was not winning any popularity contests with these other guys who finally had the opportunity for the first time in their lives to eat like kings, drink like sailors or whatever. It's like they are having the time of their lives, presumably. And now because of this, vegetarian. God, they ruin everything. It's like, <laughs> it's all taken away. I'm sorry, vegetarians, but I don't know how you do what you do. All right. So um, <laughs> it sounds awful. So anyway, but I will say it, it, it should come as no surprise to us that after 10 days, Daniel and his boys looked physically stronger and healthier then the guys who were eating more than they should and drinking more than they ever have. You know how you look after a 10-day bender, right? If you're saying yes, uh, come see me in my office because you're not supposed to know how you look after a 10-day bender. Anyway, so no judgment here, okay? Um, so the, the, the point is, you know it's gonna be a, they're gonna look healthier and stronger. That, that should come as no surprise. But what is a little surprising is just these young men and their conviction. It's like they don't have any... They don't care about other people's opinions of them. They care about God's opinion of them. And it would have been so easy for them to compromise on this little thing and then to stay, you know, just some of the guys instead of standing out and being in the crosshairs of their judgment, you know? But uh, these guys were having nothing of it. They refused to give in to the popularity contests. I want you to remember one thing today. Popularity contests are for godless people. <laughs> Popularity contests are for people who don't know God well enough to know that he should be their one and only audience. When you don't know God that well, it's easy to start worrying more and more about what other people think of you. And that pressure, that pressure is enough to cause many of us to compromise our core values. Now, that kind of compromise isn't always uh, what it seems. It seems innocuous, but those little steps, the little things we do, the little bit of food, the little bit of wine, the little white lies, the little corners we cut to make our lives a little bit easier, they always come with consequences. They always carry greater consequences that we cannot see in the moment. One minute, you're just, you know, enjoying the hospitality of the king, and the next minute, you're worshiping whatever he puts in front of you. And it's hard to explain how it happens, but it is absolutely the case that it happens. And Daniel and his boys seem to know this because they rejected the gifts of the king as tempting as they must have been. And in Daniel chapter three, verse one, the story picks up this way. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide. So kind of like an obelisk shape of some kind, maybe. And set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So some kind of idol, right? Uh, probably a, a, a 
some kind of a shrine to Baal, maybe, or Marduk, or maybe to Nebuchadnezzar himself. Nonetheless, we know that it's supposed to be worshipped. The king commanded that you worship these, this thing that he built. And anytime the king's band started playing the, uh, the song that they were playing, everybody that heard it had to stop and face the direction of that idol and drop to their knees and worship it. But of course, if Daniel and his boys aren't going to have fine food and wine, they're not going to give in to this either. This is a, a more overt slap in the face to their God. And so they refused to cooperate. Daniel's three friends in particular refused to cooperate. And this is what happened. This is Daniel 3, verses 8 to 18. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty issued a decree that everyone who hears the music fall down and worship the image of gold and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. By the way, probably the same blazing furnace that he made the idol in. Just an interesting little, you know, an interesting little connection there. But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the, prince, the province of Babylon. A little bit of jealousy here coming from these Babylonian officials. You've set them over your affairs. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned them. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want, to we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I don't know how old these guys were or what their track record is, but these are the kind of men that I want to emulate. Their clarity and their sincerity and, and just the truth that they're willing to speak to the king who could kill them, it's admirable. I don't know if I would have that kind of, of strength and presence of mind to do this. I might just, you know, tell the king fine, you know, I guess I can just, you know, take a little breather on my knees when I hear the song and face that thing you built. And it's not like I'm worshiping it or anything. I'll just play along and not get burnt to a crisp. Like, that sounds good. It's pretty easy. Burning furnace sounds almost as bad as vegetarianism. It's like, it's got to be terrible, terrible way to go. All right. So I'll just compromise. I'll just play along. No, there's a certain clarity that these guys have that is so liberating to them, that enables them to speak so uh, profoundly and clearly to the powers that were in their day. Now, I, I think it comes from a, a deep and personal relationship with God, and the more I love God, the easier this, kinds of get, this kind of thing gets for me. But the truth is the battle for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wasn't 
the one they fought when the king threatened them with the fiery furnace. The battle really began when the king offered them the food and the wine. And this is what's lost on us. We don't understand that had they taken the food and the wine from the king, it would have been much more difficult. They would have lost or or ceded the moral high ground when the king told them to worship this idol that he made. If they had enjoyed his hospitality, how do they say no to him now? They've already bent on the rules, uh, the, the way of God. Then what's wrong with taking one more step down that road? You see how this happens? This is the sinister way that the world works. We're tempted by the little things, and then it's one more thing, and then it's one more thing. And then before we know it, we're, we are compromising everything in order to, uh, to be appreciated and liked by the world. Now, being different is hard. And that's why so few people do it. That's why so few people would have stood up and said what these three young men said. It's just easier to go along with the world and to make excuses and justifications in your own mind. It's just easier to listen to the songs the world listens to. It's just easier to say the kinds of truisms the world repeats, whether or not they're true or in line with scripture. It's just easier to go along with the politics of your friends group. It's just easier not to stir the pot or upset anyone. It's just easier to take that bite, to drink that wine. It's just easier to go for it. But soon enough, your acceptance of these things becomes approval of these things. Before long, you've lost any of the salt or the light that God identifies his people with. It's, it's so easy to let that happen. So many of us do it because we know that to choose God over the ways of the world, it's always gonna bring consequences. Turning on that Christian radio station when your friends are in the car, it's always going to bring consequences. They're not going to want to ride with you anymore. What is this you're listening to? You know, let's, let's turn on some, you know, I don't know, Lil Nas X or something. And one day you're listening to Lil Nas X, and the next minute you're giving the devil a lap dance. And it's just, it happens in the blink of an eye. And that's just, it's just sinister, the way that it works, and uh, my apologies to anyone who doesn't know the reference of <laughs> Little Not Sex. I didn't just pull that out of the air. Okay, okay, but don't Google it. Okay, okay, so the, the young men refused the king's uh, the, the command, and there were consequences. So the, the king had them bound by their hands and their feet and thrown into the blazing furnace. But then, of course, something unexpected happened. Daniel 3, 24 to 27 says, Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking in or walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Was it Jesus? Was it an angel? Scholars are debating this constantly. I vote Jesus. Team Jesus. Anybody else? I think it was Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. He did that a couple of times. It's amazing. It looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. This passage is, of course, where we got the title for the series, Another in the Fire, because 
In this story, we're reminded of the time God showed up in the fire with his people who refused to compromise to the ways of this world on the small things or the big things. He showed up to protect and rescue and deliver his people just like he had in the Exodus when God showed up with his people in the water and held back the sea so they could leave Egypt and escape to their freedom that he had for them. He was with the first Christians who were chased down, hunted, persecuted, and killed in some cases. He was with them to the end, and he's with them to this day. That's just who Jesus is. He came to show us that God is with us, Emmanuel, God with us through thick, through thin, in good days and bad. He's with you in the fire. He's with you in the water. He's with you in imprisonment, captivity, persecution, whatever. He's with the Christians in China right now who are doing church underground. He's with the Christians in places like North Korea and Somalia where where declaring your faith in Christ is like signing your death warrant. And he's with us as well today as we make these little choices each day to be courageous and not conform the ways of this world, because the way of Jesus and the way of our culture, they are two divergent paths. So how do we do that? How do we avoid the trappings and temptations of this world? How do we, as Paul wrote to the Romans, uh, refuse to conform? Romans chapter 12, verse two is a memory verse that you must, you must remember. Do not conform, Christians to the patterns of this world will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, how does this happen? I'll give you a few ideas and y'all can talk about some others on the way home or on the comments section online. First way that I myself have seen uh, nonconformity happen in my life is by learning to control myself. Self-control is a gift of the spirit. There's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. When, you, uh, when the Holy Spirit is alive in you, you are more empowered to control your impulses. One problem with living in a culture that's so comfortable and convenient like ours is that we forget the power of the word no. Just because you can have something or, or do something doesn't mean you should. Not always. And so learning to control yourself means saying no to things you would typically say yes to just because you can. And you learn to say no to those things occasionally at least just to prove to yourself you still have agency, that you're not a slave. And so this is what the New Testament calls fasting, for example. We learn to fast and do without something for a period of time. This is what the the whole Bible really refers to as Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Detach yourself from the world at least for one day a week just to declare your independence from it. And so even if it's something that's not that bad for you, so to speak, uh, you can do without it and declare your independence in Jesus' name. Self-control is first. Second is speaking the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? So this is uh, pretty clear from the Bible. Uh, This passage from Ephesians is one example. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. The Proverbs are all about being uh, men and women of few words. If you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Don't make it up as you go. And don't just say what other people are saying. All right, so uh, this, is, this is a truism throughout scripture. And, and unfortunately, most of us grew up not with biblical philosophy, but with more like a thumper 
philosophy, which if, I'm dating myself here, but anybody my age and older probably has watched the Bambi movie and Thumper had this philosophy on life that his dumb mother gave him because it's a ridiculous philosophy. No, no disrespect to Thumper's mom, but she had no idea what she was talking about. She said to Thumper and to all of us, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Have you heard this? That is just a terrible way to live your life. And that is a very easy way to ruin someone else's life <laughs> because sometimes loving someone means telling them stuff they need to hear, <laughs> even though it's not nice. <laughs> For Christians, the mantra isn't, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. The, the mantra is, if you can't say something true, don't say anything at all. So that means we only speak truth. We don't just say what others are saying and do what others are doing. And, and we don't always have to speak. What? Christians, you don't have to win every argument. You don't have to engage every battle. You can just be quiet sometimes. You don't have to be the jerk that's always proving everyone else wrong. But when you do speak, speak the truth and speak it in love. Third and finally, I would offer this little advice. Do not neglect to get together. Do not neglect the gathering. This passage from Hebrews says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Even in the first century, they were in the habit of not meeting together, not going to church. And the writer of Hebrews called, called him out on it. All the more, he says, as you see the day approaching. Now this is something I feel a lot of urgency about all of a sudden. I've never been one to really want to uh, value church attendance too highly. That can be a little bit of an idol for, for pastors. <laughs> it's like, how many butts in the seats today? You know, it's like that kind of thing. That's not what I'm, what I'm getting at, but I'm troubled by some of the data that's coming out post-COVID now. And the number from among the people who were worshiping regularly in America in January, 2020, less than 60% have returned as of last month. And, you know, I, I know there's people that are watching online or people here maybe that are like, what, people are still scared and the Delta variant and people are worried and grandma and my babies and, okay, I, I hear you, but when will we be allowed to, to speak truthfully about this? When will it be okay? Because my hunch is, the enemy has learned something over the past year and a half or so about the, the result of fear in our culture. And I don't think there will ever be a time when it, it is deemed safe for us to worship together again. I think you will always have some reason, if you're looking for it, to be too scared to gather. And I think that's by design and I think we should be aware because there's no such thing as solitary Christianity and even if you just can't stomach being in a room with a couple hundred other people, then don't come on Sunday, but find a small group, find a Bible study, find some way to connect with other Christians who are praying and worshiping together, reading the Bible together, confessing their sin together, repenting together. Because without that, it's so easy for us to allow the anxiety to grow within us and to get out of the habit of connecting with God and his people on a regular basis. Christianity is a team sport. We are in this together. We need each other. Getting together 
is a huge and it will be an increasingly important way for us. As the world continues being the world, there's no indication that being a Christian is gonna get any easier. And in some way, our church, your small group, it, it functions like a sanctuary city in an otherwise hostile world. So you need to gather together, no matter how good it feels to be in your pajamas right now, no matter how good a job our media team is doing with this online worship thing, it's not the same. It's a nice substitute for a season, but may it only be a season. When you face the world this week, you will be left with a choice. You can look at the world and how crazy it's gone and just detach yourself from it. You can look at the world and how crazy it's gone and you can just become deranged. Or you can look at the world and open your Bible, and instead of being detached or deranged, you can just be Daniel and his friends, who in the face of constant, ever-increasing pressure, stood up for what they knew was right and spoke the truth that they knew, refused to compromise even on the little things and held fast, even though their courage came with consequences. I pray that God gives you the same kind of courage today and in the days ahead. You might be here thinking, I don't know that God can deliver me from the mess I'm in or from the mess I would be in if I started telling the truth. He can, he has, and he will. Trust him, trust no one or nothing but him. And when you trust him, everything else will fall into proper place. Would you pray with me? God, give us courage. Lord, embolden us. Lord, help us to see that uh, all of us have compromised in some form or fashion. We've all fallen short. Lord, we want to bow down to nothing but you. We want to worship you alone. Give us the courage, Father, to gather together again. Give us the courage to speak the truth again, Lord. Give us the courage to control our impulses and to say no to things we usually say yes to just because we can. Lord, help us to live devoted, committed lives, even if there are consequences. We want eternity with you and nothing less. In Jesus' name, amen.